Hey guys, welcome back to the CBA's ABCs of Bow Hunting. We have an awesome guest today. It's Rick Davis. And Rick is from the Western Slope, and he has been bow hunting for just a little while. <laughs> and Rick is Rick is one of the most accomplished bow hunters in the state, and you probably have never heard of him because Rick doesn't really say much. Do you <laughs> He's even, a quiet do guy. You even do social media? No, I don't. So here you got you got a killer, and and we were talking about this on the first podcast, mm-hmm. just about there's so many people in Colorado that that are phenomenal hunters but you wouldn't know about them because they don't post everything on social exactly and so this is what what i'm looking forward to the most about especially episodes like this is introducing all of these new you know uh, maybe adult onset bow hunters who don't know who guys like rick davis are because rick has great stories and we need to hear those stories because we can all learn something from it i mean he's Rick, correct me if I'm wrong. You just told me you've hunted 25 of the 28 big game species in North America. I've actually hunted 26. Um, wow. And there's three species I haven't hunted, which is uh, polar bear, tule elk, and desert bighorn sheep. Holy cow. So, and I keep putting in for desert ho- bighorn sheep, and one of these days, I might get lucky and draw a tag. There you go. Um, in... Is there states other than Colorado that have desert bighorns you can hunt? Yes, there is. There's uh, Nevada, there's uh, Utah, and Arizona. So those are the basic states right there. New Mexico. New Mexico. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh-huh. New yeah. Mexico has a decent. Thank it's, you. It's, it's starting to come along. And the only reason I say that is I'm from New Mexico. Okay. And when I was a kid, <laughs> we did not have a huntable population, but we do now. Yeah. Thanks mm-hmm. to a lot of conservation efforts yeah. from a lot of organizations. And it's it's kind of cool to see those opportunities coming to light. Rather than us losing opportunities in our lifetime, we're actually gaining opportunities, which is pretty awesome, if but you ask me. that's not the narrative you hear. It isn't. And, and I think that that's because, and, and we're going to ask Rick another point here in just a second here, um, regarding the big eight here in Colorado. Rick, how, how have you done on that? Um, I've done pretty good. I was the 40th person to take all eight big game species here in Colorado. And uh, my last one was a sheep. And, excuse me, my last one was a white-tailed deer. Huh. And the one before that was a sheep. And I had three different tags for sheep. And it took me the third season or third time to no be kidding. able to harvest the sheep. Uh-huh. That's awesome. So... What if if you had to choose one of the species here in Colorado, if if you were forced to choose just one of the big eight that you could hunt again, what would it be and why would it be mule deer? <laughs> why would it be mule deer? <laughs> did, did I phrase that wrong? I think did it's that a leading question. Wrong? I think what? that is. Oh, oh, okay. I thought everybody agreed on that. Okay, go ahead, Rick. Let's hear your opinion. Actually, it would be bears for me because I just love hunting oh, bears. No I've spent a lot of time hunting bears. Um, we used to have a season in Colorado for baiting bears. Yeah. I literally spent every day of the season hunting bears. Oh, what, that's awesome. I lived at at the time. Um, I was able to get up early in the morning, go out, do my baiting, go to come back home, go to work, and after work, get out there and sit on my stands and hunt. And after the season ended here, I would travel up to Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. So Holy cow. I literally... He sounds like you and mule deer hunting, but he has bears. Wow. Man. So you, what, what turned you on? Was it just the proximity of the bears that you could hunt in your area that turned you on to, to the love of bear hunting? Um, I did have very good bear hunting where I lived at, um, over by Aspen, Colorado. So that was just a... Uh, uh, nice and it was able to get out in the springtime and start hunting there and i just loved to extend my hunting seasons however i could and i thought that was just important for me you know get out there in the spring start hunting and get sharp and then you can also see where other animals are starting to migrate through as um the snows would start mm-hmm. melting and oh, getting yeah. up into the high country, you know, so you could start to see deer, you could start to see the elk migrating through, and so there's just a lot in the spring you can do. When they still had a spring season, could you hunt bear twice a year? Could you do a fall hunt and a spring hunt for a black bear? Yes. Oh, uh-huh. man. Uh-huh. That stinks that that opportunity's not with us anymore. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we dropped the ball. 
We did. We dropped the ball on that, and that's something that I think uh, we are we have learned. I don't know that we'll ever get it back. I hope we do, but it's something we definitely have learned from. Yeah, we probably never will ever get back the spring bear right. season there. That's yeah. just the way that's going to be. But we have good opportunities in the fall for um, hunting black bear. Yeah, so, so have you have you still had some success in the fall hunts for for black bears as well? I have. Uh huh. So what spotting what, and stalking? Spot and stalk. So uh-huh. what what would you say? I mean, obviously, the biggest difference between spot and stalk and your spring bears, the bait, the stand. But what would you say um, if you had to give a tip to a bow hunter who's been frustrated by owning black bear tags? Who I'm absolutely convinced they can smell those things then when i have it yeah when i have the tag there will be no bear encounters when i don't have the tag it's constant i'll see bears Mm -hmm. but if you could give me one tip for success on black bears what would you tell me for for the fall season really just uh do some good research on that because the habits of the black bear are different in the fall than they are in the spring look for your oak trees and um some of your uh acorns and so forth that's what they like to feed on in the fall so if you can concentrate in those areas that's really helpful there gotcha you know so what about berries and stuff like that i mean if you if you have raspberry bushes in the area i mean is that something that that. they'll concentrate on too yes they will Uh okay that's also a good thing to look at and that's honestly when i've been glassing and i find a that's where i've seen a lot of a lot of bears because i'm glassing you know whatever and i look over and i find there's a patch and then all of a sudden there's a head or a, or, or I, I see a, a patch of fur and they're if it's a good season they're they're gorging themselves so yes, what about, uh, and that's a great point trevin what about those years rick that that there's just not an acorn patch that there's not an acorn growth year i mean i i know and i don't know why we get those but i've i've known over the last few years there's been a couple of cycles like that one of the keys is just starting to glass a lot of opening areas there first thing in the morning you'll see those bears though get out in the opening they'll be feeding on the grasses and um anthills and so forth look for that okay and then later on in the morning they'll start getting back into the heavy timber so First thing in the morning, late in the evenings are really keys for trying to spot uh, a bear. Mm, that's Very interesting. Cool. If I can interject here, one, we haven't met yet. I'm Jake. I'm uh, new to bow hunting. Uh, I've been doing it for about three years out in New York, and last year was my first season out in Colorado. So, like, anything you're saying, I'm, like, chomping at the bit to understand <laughs> more of. But um, to give our listening audience a little bit more history about you, could you run us through your how you entered t- hunting? Did you start with bow hunting? Did you start with a rifle? Was it in Colorado? I apologize for not knowing too much about you, but I'm sure people listening are curious as I am. Well, I started out as a real young kid. My mom just gave me a little bow, and she said that was one of her worst mistakes she ever did. <laughs> and I just took off from there. And uh, nobody in my family ever hunted, so Same I knew anyone in my family that That's hunts awesome. her. And uh, I started as a little kid rabbit hunting, took rabbits with my bow. I also took uh, grouse flying in the air with my bow. I took pheasants with uh, my bow. Wow. Um, and then kind of graduated on to deer. My first deer I took was uh, at the age of 16, a white-tailed deer back in Michigan. That's and, awesome. Uh, is that with a longbow? Um, that was with a recurve. Nice. Uh-huh. So that's what I started out with, uh, recurves, longbows, and then now I'm shooting a compound bow. Very cool. So what kind so, of bow do you shoot, Rick? What's what's your what's your go-to setup for, for your hunting bow right now? Right now I'm shooting a Hoyt, and it's a couple years old. I'm just trying to think of the name of it. You caught me off guard here. Nope, sorry. Is <laughs> it a carbon bow? Uh, no. It's no. a uh, it's an aluminum it's riser, so I'm yeah. trying to think. Maybe Pro a Defiant, Defiant or something like that. It's an Alpha Max. Alpha, oh, oh, Alpha yes. Max. Oh, my gosh, I, I love the that Alpha bow. Max. That's uh-huh. a great bow. Yep. Still sm- shooting just perfect there. It's yeah. a great and bow. I hate to um, you know change it all. Don't mess with there. success, right? Yeah. But, uh-huh. <laughs> so. Well, I want to jump in here because I want to give listeners a visual view of where we're at. We are at the CBA Banquet, the 2021 CBA Banquet at the Elegante Hotel. Do you like my accent there? Elegante. That was, that was pretty <laughs> smooth. Thank you, thank you. And um, 
And so if you hear a background noise, we're sitting in the actual um, banquet, banquet room. Yeah. yeah, the banquet hall. And so people are coming in and looking at some of the silent auction. So you might hear that in the background. But um, what a great opportunity for us to take this show on the road yeah. and pull guys like you, Rick, that, that, like I said, here you are. People might not know you because you don't do all the social media. And and I think the three of us would agree that, that we do a lot of social media out of necessity. But if yeah. it was if we had it all to, to do over again, perhaps we wouldn't be as involved because uh, there's something to be said for the purity of the hunt and just being able to enjoy it. But uh, what is a story that was perhaps the most difficult challenge uh, in your bow hunting career, is there one? Um, probably the most difficult is hunting sheep, and there's a lot of different species of sheep. There's desert bighorn sheep. There's Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. There's doll sheep. There's stone sheep. Um, I had a great experience of hunting stone sheep. Um, had some nice stalks on the first hunt I was on. After 15 days, I didn't take a um, stone sheep at all. Um, got back to the main base camp and I asked the outfitter, I says, um, I asked him how many openings he was going to have for next year. He said he didn't have any. He had one for the following year. And I said, you don't have any more for the following year because <laughs> I booked it right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, What state was this in? This was in British Columbia. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And spending 15 days on horseback and just riding every day and climbing some steep areas there, hunting sheep there, it was just phenomenal. Um, we spotted my ram when I took that year quite a ways off, about six, seven miles, and we rode in and we took the uh, my ram and he said, we're not gonna make it back by dark here, but he says, we need to get out of here because of a lot of grizzly bears here. And I said, I'm not riding back in dark here. Let's just take the saddles off the horses, put them on the ground, and we'll spend the night right here. So we spent the night right there with sleeping on the saddles and with a rifle right next to us, but we never had a problem with grizzly bear at all. Oh okay. man. But that was just a, a phenomenal hunt to be able to spend 15 days on horseback. That's cool. Yeah. What That's year really was cool. that? Um, that was probably about eight years ago. Uh-huh. So, if, so you've really enjoyed these sheep hunts then. I mean, and it's, it's interesting because you, you talked about your third time you killed your, your bighorn here in Colorado. Yes. And it's, it's interesting because it's those struggles, those hunts that we really struggle for. You notice when we ask these kind of questions, it's rarely the, yeah, so there I was opening day and he stepped out and I smoked him. I mean, right. that's that, there's not right. a lot of story that goes along with that unless there was a, a lot of preseason scouting. But it's those struggles that really, those ones that we really have to work our butts off for to find success. That's what, that's where it tends to mean the most to us. And right. I love that. I was on a doll sheep hunt in Northwest Territories, and it was the last day. I was probably about 200 yards from a nice ram. My outfitter handed me his rifle and said, take it. And I said, no, we still need to get closer. Oh, wow. I ended up not taking a ram that time, but uh, I got within 100 yards that uh, particular evening there, and uh, I said, I'm happy. And he said, you just spent a lot of money here. And I said, I'm happy, you know. That's really cool. I wish wish we could have that kind of mindset more. I I don't mean to throw our industry under the bus, but it does seem like we get in a situation where you have the same thing that happened with you, Rick, and the hunter is mad. It's almost like when they book these hunts, especially these premier hunts, which aren't cheap, let's be honest, but they are able to come across an, with an attitude or they they some a lot of times come across an attitude of well I need to kill something because I spent this money so you can't guarantee it no it's hunting especially well, and, with the bow and that's I think that's key because truly there, it, it doesn't matter what you've invested into it it does not matter this is bow hunting and success is not always 
going to come in the form of a trophy picture or a, a heavy backpack ride on the way out. I mean, that's just all there right. is to it. Well, you're not really buying the animal, you're buying the experience. And that's good very point. true. That's a good point. Uh-huh. That's very true. Because that's one thing I've noticed in my life. I moved from New York a couple of years ago, and I have a lot of friends that are successful out there, but you're paying for services, you're paying for luxury, you're paying for the best meal in town, where it's like, let's go rough it somewhere and remember the experience we had. Uh, before I was into hunting, we would just do some winter camping, and those are the best stories we had all year long. We'd talk about it for a few months after, and then talk about the next one about three months later, and the idea of being out there and appreciating what's going on around you is something that I really appreciate about this sport, about this activity. Yes, we get meat. Yes, we can feel successful, but success can be defined so broadly. And I think that's, for me as a new hunter, my version of success is probably very different than your version of success, Rick. Is there... um, a standard you hold yourself to on certain hunts? Do you go in with a specific mentality, whether it's about a species or about what you want to happen? Um, a lot of my hunting has been just trying to go after a certain species. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out doing a lot of caribou hunting. Oh, cool. And so I first started in Newfoundland and walked my way all the way across the upper Canada hunting caribou there. So <laughs> with I've a take, bow? Yeah, I've taken all the different that species awesome. of caribou. Um, I spent three different trips to Newfoundland before I actually uh, harvested a caribou. Wow. And then I went after the Quebec Labrador caribou. Took a great caribou there. Um, It's almost in the top 20 of the record books there. Really? Wow. Uh, Then I took a central barren ground caribou. I spent a couple different trips up in uh, Canada doing that. Oh, man. And then also mountain caribou. uh, uh, all by horseback again in uh, British Columbia and then uh, Alaska barren, barren ground caribou. Man. So those are just some awesome so cool. hunts and I've had several different trips up to Alaska just hunting caribou before I was able to harvest one with a bow. So. Is there anything across the various types of caribou that is consistent versus other species in, in an approach, in a pattern of behavior? Is there something you've noticed in your hunting? Uh, not so much in the pattern of behavior, but, uh, you know, you'll see them in a lot of herds. Mm-hmm. And trying to be able to stalk and get close to a herd can be very difficult at times because you've got a lot of eyes looking at you. Yeah. So you really have to use the terrain and to your advantage there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it just pays to really glass and see what the animals are doing before you really try to move in on the animals. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, that's a lesson that I wish I would have heard you say those words about 15, 20 years ago. (laughs) My my wall would look very different because that patience of knowing when to make your move and when to be aggressive and when to sit back. Holy cow. It's not something that you're just born with. It's something that develops. And mine has only developed over, you know, after a lot of mistakes Mm -hmm. (laughs) having been made. I I think there's two spectrums there's the the timid hunter and the over aggressive hunter yeah and we have to meet in the middle somewhere i'll go hunting with a group of guys i'm sure you guys have seen this too and you have your aggressive guy who blows everything out and you have your timid guy who's waiting for the absolute perfect moment with me one thing that's helped me is understanding animal behavior yes and that's a key that i'm really watching to which tells me what i can get away with now there's times i still make mistakes i stub my toe or or you know kick a rock over whatever it might be but it's amazing what you can get away with in the right condition i.e a bull elk raking a a tree you can run at that bull elk that's when you want to be aggressive if he's alone but you know what i mean or, or or the way they're they're feeding and and with caribou caribou i've never seen an animal that can feed and move as fast as them they cover so much country you cannot run and keep up with the caribou Right. It's just uh, you can't do that. Even if they're meandering, they, you still can't keep up with them. Right. Isn't that crazy? It is. Uh huh. But they're just a beautiful animal, and I just love hunting caribou species there. I love the, all the horns. I love the color of the animals from season to Absolutely. season. Absolutely. 
you'll see them they'll be nice early in the season they'll be a nice dark chocolate brown and then as winter time starts coming along you'll start to see them turning more white and that has to deal with uh, um, predators too they use that as kind of a, a camo mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. with the, the snow and in the environment there. Hmm. That makes sense, yeah. So you grew up in Michigan? Yes, I did. So when did you make your, uh, we were talking about this in the first podcast, none of us are really native Coloradans, because I'm from New Mexico. <laughs> There's six of them in the whole state. Yeah, and the <laughs> rest I've of, never met one. Right. <laughs> the rest of us are transplants. So when did you end up calling Cal- Colorado home? Um, 1977. I was, was six. Uh-huh. Is when I moved out here. <laughs> Four. Zero. (laughs) Shut up, James. (laughs) When I was living in Michigan, I belonged to the Michigan Bow Hunters Association. And there was an article in there, and the gentleman said, uh, who wrote the article on mule deer hunting in Colorado, he says, if you want to hunt mule deer, call me. Well, that was actually a mistake by the editor. (laughs) He put that in there. But over a period of time, I kept on calling the gentleman, and finally he accepted me to come out with his group to Colorado. So 1974, we came out here on our first hunt to Colorado. Um, 1976, or 1974, 1975, 1976, I came out with the same group. And uh, I just loved Colorado. I just loved all the animals, what we have here, the variety, the country, the hills, the mountains. Um, it's an easy place to fall in love with, man. Yeah. I'll tell you, the first time I drove through the Rocky Mountains, I was like, yep, I'm home. <laughs> this is it. This is, this is it here. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So those first couple of years, um, what did you kind of cut your teeth on? You said mule deer there. I mean, was that you guys hunting mule deer and elk a lot? Was that uh, kind of where you got started out here? We did. Uh-huh. The first year I hunted uh, strictly mule deer with an outfitter out here. Um, the second year I came out, and I came out by myself because I wanted to spend some more time. I spent the whole season here. Um, I like your style, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was actually the second day of the season I took a cow elk, my first cow uh, elk, and then I hunted every day, and it was the last day of the season before I took a nice 5 by 5 mule deer. That's so, awesome. Um, I by put, yourself? I, by myself. I put how, a lot of time in there. How was that? How, how did you feel about a Michigan bow hunter coming to Colorado, being successful with a cow elk, and then grinding it out? That had to feel great and killing a great buck. <laughs> It was it was unbelievable because spending so much time outdoors there and to make it happen at the beginning and at the end of the season there, it was just well worth it there. Mm. Um, I just experienced a lot of things there, being outdoors and listening to elk bugle and just getting out there and backpacking into the country there, not having any maps or anything there. So I just used my compass. And just headed out in a direction and spent several days out there. Then I would turn around and come back to camp, kind of clean up a little bit, rest for a day, half a day, and then get out there and do the same thing. Just throw my backpack on and go for it. So was your Onyx Maps app not working back then? <laughs> <laughs> At the time, this nobody is, knew about Onyx exactly. Maps. Or cell phones. <laughs> I mean, that's the cool uh-huh. thing. Uh-huh. This is uh-huh. such a... This is, what, this is why we wanted people like Rick on this podcast. There are lessons that we can learn from you and i mean you've been a hugely successful bow hunter for years and i i love hearing about that and i loved also one of my favorite things about that is you you found success early in the hunt and then on the last day of the hunt and the lesson that i learned from that and that that is you can't kill them from the couch Mm -mm. you need to be out there and you need to put in your time and and you can find success just as easily on the first day as you can on the last day but But if you you give up you gotta hunt as hard on the last day as you do on the first one thousand percent right right. because if Uh you give up and you go home the only guarantee of success right then is that you're not going to have any (laughs) and i mean that's that's something that we all notice i mean how what do you see for crowds opening weekend versus the last weekend you've got the place to yourself by that last weekend and and that brings up a good point i want to ask you rick what did you see compared to nowadays when you were in the backcountry for that long what kind of crowds did you see like we all talk about public land elk hunting and the amount of people that are in colorado hunting public land elk during the archery season did you run into a lot of people was there a lot of people backpack hunting at that time 
I really never ran into hardly anybody at all backpacking. Maybe an odd hunter once in a while I did. But, uh, you know, you get out there and most of the hunters aren't going to go out 5, 10 miles. And that's what I would do. I would just head out there and just keep going day after day after Still day. Still working them. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if you find something, then you really just hunt it hard. If you don't, you just keep moving on. And... Uh, Nowadays, you do see more people out there hunting, and that's okay. We all want to see people out there hunting. We all want everybody to enjoy our sport. That's very important. But for me, I can get right off the road there in places and not really see many people at all. I can go oh, a couple hundred yards and start hunting, and you just don't see people. Um, where I hunt, I've uh, one of the areas I hunted, I've taken three elk and two bears within about 50 yards of each other <laughs> oh that's cool yeah and it's right off a horseback trail but it's very steep going up a hillside i climb up that hillside everybody else would just keep going back for several miles this is only a quarter mile from a road so you're talking about a small little pocket a small that little has pocket. some contour to to protect it and it's just boom right there uh-huh that's so cool wow. and you got to work to get up there you got to do right. some rock climbing and you will sweat you'll earn your dollars you'll earn your at the end of the time you'll feel that going up there but it's not that far and people right. don't realize that that animals can be close to the roads or you might have to go way back in you just mm -hmm. got to be very flexible to be able to do that one thing I'm curious about, because we're talking 45 years ago, um, it's such a different landscape, both hunting, animals, pressure, the whole thing. One thing for me is it's scary to go out and hunt in the backcountry by yourself, and you're doing it without a Garmin inReach, without these maps. How did you get to the point of confidence with your animals, with yourself, of land navigation, of being back there? Did you pack in food? Did you pack in water? I mean, I'm just kind of baffled that you were able to have those experiences and, like, you seem so nonchalant about it. I would be telling everybody, <laughs> I was like, back in 76, look at me, this and that. I would always pack in food, and I wouldn't pack in a lot of water because I would rely on streams, creeks, um, seeps, and so forth that mm -hmm. were coming out of the, the hillsides there but there would be days and sometimes several days where i ran out of food i'm still out there hunting though i don't care and what i did i would maybe shoot a grouse yeah mm. and sit there and boil the grouse up and have it or cook did it up over an open fire there did that become yeah. your priority like all right i gotta eat something let's <laughs> stop looking for elk and start looking for rabbits or something a, a couple times it did become my priority there because yeah. i needed to have food to continue my hunt man that is cool. That is inspiring. Because I'm like, oh, man, I'm tired of eating Mountain House. You're like, I'm tired of not eating. <laughs> uh -huh. Sometimes I was able to catch some fish out of a creek there. Yeah. You run into a small little creek, and I would just try to grab them by the hand and... <laughs> and start a fire and cook them up. So. You are badass. Man. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> hey, guys, did I tell you Rick was going to be a good gas girl? Yeah. I mean, so the, the cool thing is, I mean, what? one more question here on, on backcountry and, and pressure. How have you noticed the difference between uh, from, from the 70s to now on non-hunting backcountry pressure, just outdoor recreationalist? There's a lot of pressure out there of outdoor recreationists right now. You're seeing a lot of mountain bikers out there. Yep. You're seeing a lot of ATVs, UTVs out there. They do have some pressure and effects on And just a lot of hikers, life. too. You a know? lot of hikers, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And because of COVID, last year was very... Um, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to fix his mic. Uh, I'm a quick you got just a little bit of scratchy because your beard. Uh oh. <laughs> your goatee. <laughs> so... Um, with that, with those pressures, it's interesting. We've had this conversation about we uh, shed hunting. Why do we not shed hunt till May 1st? The idea behind that is to allow those animals that have had the pressure of a breeding season, a pressure of a hunting season, going into the winter and to give them a chance to recover. The problem that we miss is that doesn't stop the recreators, which it I don't want not. to stop them, yeah. but there is a point to where if we're holding back the guys that want to go shed hunting and tend to, the shed hunters tend to be hunters, um, 
but they're still getting pressure from that other the recreational side of the outdoorsman and it, and it makes me wonder how do how do we truly modify that or is there a possibility that we can modify that so we are taking the pressure off the animals because if you remove the shed hunter sure that's going to reduce some of the pressure but i mean how many people love to go walking through calving areas because it's beautiful yeah. and we all know elk will calve they'll breed in the same areas each year unless unless they're bothered um so I, I don't have an answer to that i just throw that out there do you have any thoughts on that that will affect the animals there especially when you're walking through where they are breeding it is nice to try to avoid those areas there but i know we all want to be out there we want to see the deer we want to see the right. elk and, and so forth um but if you are running into some calves and and that on the ground back out stay away from them let them be don't right. harass them there at all absolutely you know and j- Yes, it's nice to take pictures of them, but you got to be close to be able to take some pictures of them. Don't take a picture. Save it for later. Right, right. Or go to a place where it's okay. Yellowstone, Rocky Mountain National Park. You're going to see them there. They're protected there. If you really want to have that experience, let's do it in a place where we've cultivated it. Yeah. Yeah. I just read that CPW is going to open up 200,000 acres of state trust fund land that was previously not allocated to consumptive use. Um, And then some of the rest of this article is talking about how the non-consumptive users don't necessarily want to pay for like a fee to access that. And I think one thing people don't really think about is you don't need to have a bow in your hand to have an impact on wildlife. Running a mountain bike through a cabin ground may permanently dislocate them from where they're going to be or just kind of have an impact on um, that stress that these animals are experiencing. So it's fascinating to kind of consider. It's like, hey, let's respect these things so that they can be here for us when we want them. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we tend to get this big division between the recreation market and the hunting market or the i don't want to call it a market but you know what i mean the industry let's call it we're we all want the same things now somebody in the recreation market might understand not understand the true north american model of conservation which hunting plays a huge role you know if i have a box and this box is an ecosystem. There's only so many animals that can survive with prime forage and water and pressure and all of that stuff. And there's a level they set. This is how many number of X, Y, Z we need in there. Okay. Well, that's the same whether you're a recreator or a hunter. And, uh, you know, so we, we've got to find those ways where we can work together to to for the benefit of the species and i always say look i don't care who suggests something that's going to help in conservation if it's good for the animals then a lot of times most of the time i'm good i'm okay with it Mm -hmm. if it benefits the the ecosystem if it benefits the environment and the conservation of the animal i'm in Uh if that means i don't get to pick up a shed till may 1st okay but but let's just make sure it's straight across the board let's make sure it's doing the best thing possible all the way across the board that's my thought. Huh? The Forest Service and Colorado Parks and Wildlife are having to deal with this every year here, the increase of people outdoors there. And the Forest Service is really concerned about um, ATVs, mountain bikers, and they've got their work cut out for them. How do you manage a forest for everybody? And all this, all the extra people we're starting to see come into Colorado. So they've got their work cut out for them on how to manage the forest for wildlife and for the human population here. Mm, yeah, well, that's good. And we need to, to plug in. And that's where you have your CPA liaison, like Joey Brown. You know, we have these other people that are, are working with the legislative, uh, you know, Wes Mendez and, and some of these other people in the CBA. And it's where the CBA does help to cross lines. Yeah. and partner with other yeah. conservation groups where we can, again, the greater good. Because I want to tell my grandkids about that year back in 2021 where I went out and did this, this, and this, right? I don't want it to stop just because you had a great opportunity, and then as we go on, our kids don't have that same opportunity. 
Um, so I think that's what we all agree on. Well, and it's a tough challenge because truly, I mean, I, hey, I moved here in 1994, um, and you know, the biggest change that I've seen here since I moved here is the population has doubled. Yeah, it has literally doubled since I moved here, and Hasn't I it mean, doubled since the pandemic. <laughs> it seems like it <laughs> outside it sure has yeah um well, and that's another thing like this last summer i've never seen so many people yeah. camping because that's all they could do well and i think also nothing like being cooped up in your house for two to four weeks that makes you want and just crave outdoors. the outdoors yeah. yeah and and i think that was the manifestation of it mm-hmm. we saw it last year I mean, yeah. hey, we bought a travel trailer a couple months ago. Holy cow. That's quite a process right now because you can't freaking find one right. because they're all sold out. And, you right. know, we asked the guy if there was any uh, negotiating room, and he goes, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he says, hey, if you don't buy it, this thing's going to be sold by the end of the week. It, it, whether it's you that's paying this or somebody else, that's that's just fine, yeah. you know. But yeah. it's changed the world. It's well, changed the world And you lot, don't just but. see it just in the ATVs and RVs, stuff like that. You also see it in bow sites. Yeah. It, I mean, I think Hoyt's running 18 weeks behind right now. If it's you crazy. Were, if you were to go in and order a Hoyt bow today, Day. it's 18 weeks to get it that's something else that'll just tell you and show you the people want to be out there and enjoying our sport absolutely yeah. you know and the increase we're having well and to all those people who are who are joining in and i mean hey if you're listening to the podcast and you've not yet joined the cba it's 30 bucks a year it's the best 30 bucks you can spend we, you're going to get a great magazine yeah you know, a world-class magazine you're going to get access to the website and you're going to get a lot of information and you're going to get to know a lot of really good people who are just as passionate about this as you are i mean jake's a great example just moved to colorado a couple of years ago and he's he's put himself out there he said hey you know what i want to get involved and by getting involved and i mean we're talking about an organization that is 100 percent run by volunteers like rick davis here who's our western regional representative Mm-hmm. And does a phenomenal job. How long have you been uh, serving as any position on the CBA? Oh boy, that's a good question. I started out as a area rep, and that's probably a good maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, worked as an area rep, and then I kind of just uh, retired. And from being an area rep and then the board of director for the west region stepped down and nobody else wanted to step up and i said well i might as well go ahead and step here up we go. so um, <laughs> i've been an area um, board of director here for the last two years and uh, i'm learning a lot just being on the board it's it's a really incredible what our board is doing for us to give us the right to be out outdoors to hunt yeah. And it's just amazing the people we have on our board. Right. And I just wanted to say one thing about people who are reading the Colorado Bow Hunters Association. If you're just kind of new into a sport, the sport here, reach out to some of these people writing the articles in here. You they bet. will help you out. You know, just reach out to them. They will be glad to help you in whatever way they can. That's a good place, a good starting point for a person. Well, kind of like you reading that article in Michigan and reaching out to How that cool guy. How cool is that? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's true. Oh my gosh. It's true. And, you know, Jake, I think uh, I'll throw this over to you because I think another reason we have so many people out there is the connection to our food that we have nowadays. Yeah. We've talked about that. Why don't you expand a little bit in your journey and becoming a bow hunter, how that connection of where your food comes from sure well the thing that's interesting to me uh, if we backtrack a little bit and talk about bow hunting versus other versions of recreating in the out of doors um, I love to hike I love to camp I just got a Baku mountain bike and it's taken me all over the place so I'm one of those people as well however I realize that the difference between Saturday morning I'm gonna hit a trailhead and Saturday afternoon I'll be back in Denver versus a couple of days out in the backcountry is consuming the environment versus becoming a part of the environment. And for me, the food journey, I studied environmental science in college. I'm very aware of factory farming and uh, climate uh, concerns associated with how we farm in this country and across the world. And so all of that makes me want to create a more well-rounded life. And the thing that I realized, and that's actually leading to a question I want to ask Rick, is I 
this is a little heady, but I feel like as human beings who've been homo sapiens for tens of thousands of years, we have a hunting instinct inside of us, an understanding of the natural world, yet it's 2021, we all have beeps and whistles and monitors and buzzers and phones in our pocket and all these... That gets that that takes that instinct away from us, and and maybe Rick, you could comment on your hunting journey. Do you feel that in those moments when you're out in the wilderness, that you're tapping into something that's already inside of you, that you may be waking up to say, you know what, I, for one weird example, last year my first backcountry elk hunt, in the middle of the night, I heard something and I knew. I go, that's coyotes. That's a pack of coyotes. It was it was Sasquatch. Yeah. No question about <laughs> it. Yeah. It's always Sasquatch. It could be a grizzly yeah, bear. Could have been yeah, grizzly. yeah. And I just, in in the moment, one, I was like, how do I know that's, that's what it is? Like, I could de- deductive reasoning, but there was just something inside of me saying, like, your body knows that those are coyotes. They're far enough away. You don't need to be concerned where you're at, where your food's at. But I'm curious if you, over your um, time, especially watching technology evolve and the amount of hunters in the field evolve, um, have any even thoughts on that or comments on that of just saying, like, waking up that primal instinct of we were hunters all humans were hunters and gatherers and that's how we got to the hotel elegante like that's how we got to this point in modernity um and i was curious how your journeys if that sparks anything inside of you i think just as a little kid it sparked me to be outdoors that's all i ever wanted to do be outdoors Um, my mom was born in gladwin michigan on a farm and whenever i was up there um, as a kid my dad would just let me go, and I don't know how many farms I would cross, how many <laughs> miles I'd walk out. They never paid attention to me at all. Yeah. And I'd learn my way back, and, and that, so I was just inspired by it as a young kid wanting to be outdoors. I wanted to see insects. I wanted to see snakes. I wanted to see all the little creepy crawlers, which you mm-hmm. deal with there. I was just into the whole idea. I wanted to know what all the little trees were out there, all the plants. Um, so I'm still learning every day when I go out. Yeah, absolutely. And the one, like, a weird association I have with that is, so I grew up in Long Island, and my parents live on the water on the North Shore. And when you're a little kid, you play in your backyard, and then they let you go down to the beach, and then you can kind of go down to the point, and then, oh, you're going to go down to the South Shore. And now here I am in the backcountry of Colorado. You expand your map. You, you expand do. your horizon. Yeah. And it's that comfort zone we were talking about as well. As today I'll go half a mile back. Tomorrow I'll go two miles back. And then you kind of build it safely because, again, you're relying on yourself out there. And if you're with horses, they're relying on you as well to make intelligent decisions, to get yourself out of there, hopefully be successful, whether that's with meat or without meat. But that idea of I am a part of this and not just watching it mm-hmm. um, is really that food connection that you were talking about, Trevin. And, and the idea of my whole year is now built around obtaining food when I'm legally allowed to from our wildlife. Um, mm-hmm. I also spearfish, and so having those connections with the underwater, uh-huh. um, you just kind of expand what you know, what you're comfortable with. And man, I'm curious if you have um, any of your like uh, stories from hunting that are just like stories you're super proud of. Th- whether you made the right decision at the right time, or you independently said, you know what, I'm going to go to this place on the map, and you're like, I nailed it. They were right there. <laughs> That's a, that's a good question right there because I just enjoyed every hunt I've ever been on. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a bad one. I might not ever get anything mm-hmm. and come home, but I still had a successful hunt there. Mm. I just felt it in my heart there that, yes, I had a great hunt there. Um, so just being outdoors has just been phenomenal. Just a, a super time for me here. That's awesome, man. Uh, hearing, your, uh, hearing you talking about just exploring the outdoors as a kid, I, I mean, I have a 15-year-old son, and I that's him. I mean, he loves, he has that desire for wild places. He has that just innate passion for it and i mean he just loves i mean we go up and see his great grandparents in in wyoming and the kid never comes inside mm-hmm. and his his, his great grandparents have commented on that a few times they said you know other other kids come up here and they just want to sit in the room and play on the computer and my son kyle just does not care about that he right. wants to go outside and he wants to see it all and hearing that i mean it, it, it's just so cool because there are some of us who are just genetically predisposed wanting to be outside 
And but I also think it's the way you raised him. I think oh, you gave him opportunities some of that for those yeah. that that wonderment to arise. Yeah. That the questioning of what is that tree? What is that crawly, creepy little thing? Where you know, and to connect with that. Do you, Rick? Who do you look up to as in your bow hunting journey? Who did you look to as a mentor? Fred Bear. Okay. That's a pretty good one. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him? Yeah. (laughs) When I was living in Michigan, there was a Fred Bear Museum in Grayling, Michigan there. Oh. I would go there every summer just to go through the museum. That's cool. And just to see all the wildlife that he has taken, African animals, lions and tigers and and elephants and you just name it, and then all the North America species there. As a little kid there going to the museum, there wasn't nothing better in my life than to go to a Fred Bear Museum. And uh, I actually met Fred Bearer in Cobo Hall at an archery shoot in downtown Detroit, Michigan there. We had about 2,000 people shooting at the archery shoot way back when, and that was a lot. But he was there just sitting in the stands, and I walked up to him and started talking to him. And uh, just a phenomenal person Fred Bearer was. Boy, that was probably 15, 16 years old. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. And I'd have my dad start taking me up there every summer to the museum there and just spend hours just walking around. And kudos to your dad for fostering that interest. Yeah. Was your dad a hunter? He was not. Wow, that's awesome. My dad wasn't either. So my, my grandpa was, and my uncles were, but my dad wasn't. And so I always say that I do applaud my dad because he did, even though he didn't hunt, he saw my interest in it, and then he would do stuff like that. Like, he would take me hunting with my grandpa because I, I was a little rowdy kid, you know. And, and honestly, <laughs> we all, I was going to say, I find that somewhat I was, relatable. <laughs> I was too much for my grandpa at the time, but my dad would go, and, and, and then, but then when I got old enough that I didn't have to go with my dad, he never went again. But he fostered that f- 14 to 16 years old, you know. Oh, man, it's great. So that's good. Kudos to your dad. Yeah, man. That is so cool. Like One thing I'm just sitting here reflecting on is you didn't have a family that hunted and you got yourself into it. You looked at to your mentors and you chose to intentionally go meet them, research them, go to these shoots. And I'm not bragging here, but similar to me, my family doesn't hunt. I'm from Long Island, bow only unit. And so fortunately in the modern day of the internet, there's all these guys out there with YouTube channels and podcasts and a lot of information. But what I realize is if you want to hunt, you got to want to hunt you got to actually go participate i had a friend message me the other day saying hey man let's go on a luxury quail hunt a luxury pheasant hunt and i think he's using the word luxury because he didn't want to put in the work and i said go take your hunter's education and i will set up the rest if this is what's going to get you into hunting you go take your hunter's education and i'll do the rest and the reason i said that to him is actions are louder than words do one thing do one thing that shows me you want to do this you You take your step and we'll I'll get the shotguns, I'll line up the outfitter, I'll do all the other stuff. But if you can do this one thing for me, I think that's enough to show me you have enough interest to get us there. Um, you probably started hunting before hunter's education was a national requirement. Um, I did. So how, I'm curious how that came into your world. I, I actually don't even really know when it started, and it's probably state by state. Yeah, I think everybody kind of adopted it yeah. differently. When I started hunting, you didn't even have to have a hunting license, I don't think there. <laughs> Maybe I was so young that I just, uh, I didn't have a hunting Statute license. Statute of limitations out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just started out hunting rabbits and pheasants and, and that, and uh, uh, my dad would take me out into some farm there and just drop me off, and I'd say, Dad, come back and get me about three, four hours later, and I'd just be out there hunting. Oh, man. So and, cool. Uh huh. And you just learn the animals there. You're hunting in the snow. Okay, what is this little track right here? That's mm-hmm. a rabbit track. What do you do? Well, I got on it and I started following it just like a dog would. And, uh, you know, sooner or later you're going to jump that rabbit. Then it gives you an opportunity for a shot. Yeah. And that's the education right there. It is. Uh-huh. Yeah, learning. And I think a lot of people try to start out big. And, and, and I think that the, these steps 
are skipped. You know, and you can't skip steps. You've got to, if you want to have a long, successful time as a hunter, I'm not going to call it a career because I make zero money at it. In fact, it costs me. <laughs> well, we don't need to talk about that. But <laughs> Your wife might listen to this. <laughs> and she would probably love to comment on it. But no, she uh, she supports it fully. But the, the fact is, if, if you take these steps and you, you know, Rick was just talking about learning how to hunt small game, learning rabbits, learning rabbit you know patterns and okay i know i'm gonna if i start walking out i'm gonna eventually jump this rabbit and get my shot so then it just becomes a matter of learning how to track okay there's a great skill that can that can carry you through a lot of things my first buck i ever killed came as a result of tracking but you learn those skills as a kid, and I, I did anyway. I mean, I learned it tracking my dog around our around our uh, property we grew up on. You know, I mean, just you learn these things kind of organically, and it becomes just part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And and those are the skills that lead you to success down the road. But yeah, that's good. Start out with small game. Start out with whatever you can get your hands on. That's just start. That's what it takes. Is just yeah. Just take the initiative to get started. Rick, what, what, what one piece of advice would you give to a young, um, I don't want to say a kid, but somebody who maybe he's a, a mid, mid-20s, late-20s, what's the one piece of advice you would give someone who is seriously interested in getting into bow hunting? I would say if you're getting into bow hunting, practice, practice, practice. Yes, yes. You know, yes. That's the, for me, that's the biggest key right there is being able to practice and then get out in the woods and start doing some stump shooting there. Just getting to be able to judge distances. This, being able to judge a distance is a big key, too, when you're hunting there. You might have a rangefinder with you, but maybe you don't have time mm-hmm. on an animal to range that. So you got to be able to say that's 30 yards, 20 yards, or 50 yards out there. And... You should be able to know after getting out there and stump shooting that the animal is at 50 yards and uh, being able to have a good shot on that. That's so great. That's, that's great. super advice. I also want to uh, tailor, you know, ride the coattails off of something you said, Jake, mm-hmm. which was the resources we have at our fingertips. And um, you are a good example of that, Jake, when you walked into a CBA me- meeting seeking out a community of people like-minded people who can mentor who can give you help cut the learning curve down yeah and i think that's important you know whether you're looking to fred bear as a, a mentor or as inspiration we have a lot of really good people like rick davis that that we can look to for inspiration and mentorship and and that's my key that's one thing i know you do you're doing with your son but you do it yeah. with other people too oh, yeah. and and I, I likewise i try and do the same thing you got to have the experience because that's how you grow but if you can do it with people that are more experienced your learning curve will lessen and then there's the personal responsibility of the practice 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 yes, you uh-huh. bet uh-huh. so yeah well rick i wanted to thank you for yes. taking the time to sit down with us i i knew this was going to be i knew this was going to be a great episode because you just you're a wealth of knowledge and we just really appreciate it and i appreciate i I also wanted to say i appreciate personally every single thing you're doing for the cba you are a tremendous asset for us it is fun and i do enjoy it and there's a lot of uh, good benefits out of it so there sure are there Uh sure are if somebody wanted to email you a question maybe they got something specific uh, how would they get a hold of you um, I'm in the back of the magazine okay. on the there CBA here. If you look at the magazine, um, I could also give out a email address. Yeah, no, let's ahead. make them be members. Okay. Hey. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I like that. That's, That's right. right. I like that. We okay. do have a free issue of the magazine available on the website. So if you do want to find Rick's contact, oh, look at that. in the show notes. But I'm trying to drive traffic look here. Look at us just overcoming well, objections. Why would you not spend 30 <laughs> bucks a year to help protect something that you love or are in interested in and is so dear to our heritage and you're going to get six amazing 
issues, you're going to help support the liaison to the CPW, the, la the legislative liaison, all of the things that we, we at the CBA are doing behind the scenes yep. to further grow and increase and support a handheld bow yeah, in Colorado. Right. CBA. Rick, thanks so much, man. This has been awesome. Thanks again, Rick. All right. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. All right. Great, great stuff, guys. Thank you.